Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back to another episode. Today, our guest is Joe Pinto, the co-founder of Haste Arcade. Uh, Joe was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and after spending four years playing professional baseball in the Chicago White Sox farm team, he co-founded his first venture called BarPay in 2015. Uh, BarPay is an app that allows you to order drinks in nightlife venues, restaurants, that sort of thing. After COVID, we talked about the story, how it changed into something that was super, super useful for a lot of restaurants, allowing them to have digital ordering and remote ordering, that kind of thing. Uh, he then became interested in Bitcoin due to the applications within BarPay, and hence his foray down Haste Arcade. So the company has built out a few games. Uh, they've developed the first instant leaderboard payout arcade. And the vision is to have the platform serve as a fun and entertaining visual representation of micro microtransactions and how they can empower new business models. So check it out. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here is Joe DePinto. All right, Joe. Um, excited to chat with you, man. It seems like we got a lot of crossover in our life paths. Um, you certainly have a unique background, given you were playing pro baseball, have worked in startups, and then built uh, bar pay, and now Haste Arcade. Uh, how do you want to start off the conversation? Yeah, I'm happy to chat about your baseball background or the transition to start your first company. What do you think makes the most sense? Yeah, I can I can give you a little background on myself. And as you kind of hinted at, our paths have crossed in the past, which uh, is kind of a funny story. You wrote an article about Flowtab, which was one of your companies way back in the day, kind of outlining, you know, the frustrations and, and why it was a very difficult concept. And I'll, I'll tie that into bar pay in a sec. But like you said, my name is Joe DePino. I'm from uh, Los Angeles, born and raised in this area. Played professional baseball for about four years after uh, after college. That's where I met my current business partner, who's pretty much tied into my story. We're, we're kind of interchangeable, but his name's Daniel Wagner. Uh, we met together in the Chicago White Sox minor leagues, and both of us kind of had like same you know ideas about life after baseball. We both were you know aware of the fact that even if you have a you know a career in the big leagues, chances are you know, you're, you're done by the time you're 34, 35. And it's like, what do you do the rest of your life? And with us, we just, we, we both shared the idea that we didn't want to be like slaves of the game. 
is what we would call it. And, you know, that's the the guys and a lot of our teammates, you know, it, it was what they wanted to do. Your career ends, you get into scouting or you want to be a coach or, or an agent or something like that. And for us, it, that was never really that appealing. We had bigger or not bigger, but we had just different ideas of, of what we wanted to get out of life and what we wanted to do and, and not letting baseball define us. So through through our experiences, though, in baseball, when you're in the minor leagues, you're in a bunch of like small towns, um, you know, not the major cities, obviously. And typically you play your games from seven o'clock to, to 10 or 11 o'clock at night. By the time the game ends, you got to get cleaned up, you got to get back to the hotel and you have roughly like an hour before curfew uh, to get your food and, and eat and all that. And if you don't make it back in time for curfew, you know, if they go around and do a room check, you get fined or you don't get to play the next day. So, you know, there were there were certain situations where we'd be out at these bars and these restaurants and, you know, closing a tab took 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, like, I missed curfew once because I was just waiting to get my credit card back. I'm not out there drinking or partying. I'm just literally waiting for my check and miss curfew, get fined, don't get to play the next day. It's just like, man, how many times has this happened to, to one of us or someone on our team? It's like, why is there not a better way to do this? And I'm sure you probably went through a very similar like mindset and process with Flowtab, but it was like the bar and restaurant industry hasn't changed for thousands of years. You you tell someone what you want, they give it to you, and then they ask you to pay them, and you pay them. Well, why why do we need that last step now with all the technology? Why can't I just order and pay on my own? So we ended up our careers ended both the same year, twenty fourteen. Uh, Dan's from North Carolina. He lives just outside of Charlotte, or he lived just outside of Charlotte kept in touch, basically decided that we wanted to pursue this idea that we had had, which was very similar to Flowtab. We didn't know about it at the time, but it was, you know, can we make it easier to, to order and pay for drinks at, at busy bars and restaurants? And I was, uh, I went to USC out here in Los Angeles. I got to become really good friends with the bar owner of like the only bar that's really in walking distance to campus. It's like one of those legendary college bars called the 901. Mm-hmm. And we, in essence, pitched him. Have you been there? You know, you know the bar. Yeah, it's a pretty iconic USC bar. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty epic. And and so we we pitched him on you know the concept, and he was like, yeah, that sounds cool for the customers, but like, what are you doing for me? You know, my bar is already full every day of the week. Like, are you saving me money? Like, are you going to make me money? What are you going to do? And we never really thought about it like that from an owner's perspective. So we asked him what his pain points were. He gave us, you know credit card processing was one of the first things that he ever brought up. And so we're like, Oh, yeah, you know, it doesn't sound too complicated. We'll just figure out how to get a better rate. So that kind of sent us down this whole rabbit hole of learning about interchange rates and how different credit cards are issued and the rewards and the different types of like cost fees or or fixed fees that come with different credit cards. And was like, wow, this is a lot of information here. Well, in those learnings, we stumbled upon this thing called Bitcoin. So this is 2014, 2015, basically, we find this mechanism that the the current narrative at the time was it's really fast. So as opposed to a credit card where it takes 24 or 48 hours to see those funds actually deposit, you're getting your Bitcoin instantly. And the transactional fees are fractions of a cent compared to typical credit card processing, you know, depending on the the ticket price is going to be between two and, and four or five percent. So in the bar industry, it's usually around two and a half to three percent. So basically, we're like, okay, cool. This is like something that we think there's like a, a way to undercut basically two and a half to three percent of what these owners are paying in their processing fees. And we just kept our eye on it. We pay attention to it. At the time, we were still raising money. You know, we weren't going to go and just try this thing that no one had ever heard of right off the bat. But it, it definitely, you know, made us aware of this thing called Bitcoin. And we just kept following what Bitcoin was up to, what it was doing over the next couple of years. And so, you know, kind of tying everything together. And, and bringing the flow tab into it, you know, 
around that same time when we're doing the research and we're, we're you know, raising money, we're, we're concepting, you know, what the product's going to be. We read the, I think it was just a blog post, but it was, it was a decently long article that you had put together on why it was such a difficult industry to implement something like that. And we read this and we're just like, man, you know, this guy, this is a really cool idea. Uh, maybe he was just a little bit early is, is what we chalked it up to. There's also, you probably even remember uh, a company called tabbed out at the time. I don't know if yeah. you heard of them. They didn't, they didn't incorporate the the ordering side of it. They were just, you pay, but you guys, you, you could order and pay, which to us was just like, yeah, like this is, this is, it seems like a great idea. Surely, you know, we can, we can give it a shot and maybe the timing's better now. So that company still runs today. Barpay is up and running. Um, I will say it was extremely difficult to to get it to where it's at now, like you probably could have assumed. Uh, and without the coronavirus, without the pandemic, it probably wouldn't exist anymore. And we've pivoted from like the app side of things to, to QR codes. We've got like 15,000 QR code accounts now. So it was kind of a blessing with with the whole COVID thing for us, at least. But that ties into what happened with the, the Haste Arcade. And basically- Wait, can, I, us- can I pause you there? Go ahead. Before you dive into that. So uh, going from professional baseball to starting BarPay, where is BarPay today? 15,000 accounts are using BarPay? 15,000 restaurants and bars? Yes, restaurants, bars, and hotels. Um, and basically, it's for a variety of things. Some only use you know, the QR code to scan for a digital menu. Others use it for the complete order and pay. Hotels use it for room service, pool service, order and pay, takeout, to go, all anything and everything. And so, yeah, it's 15,000 accounts roughly. Um, most of them are in the US, but we do have some international ones as well. And the majority of those, I mean, 99.9% have all happened since 2020. So we went from having, you know, 20 to 30 accounts that were just doing order and pay prior to uh, COVID to all of a sudden, we created this this QR code digital menu. I think we were one of the first people to put that out, that same owner of the Nino uh, that I was telling you about. They were actually the ones, they reached out to us right after venues closed. So everything is still closed. This is like March or April 2020. Basically saying, hey, we think that when we reopen in a month or two, like we're we're gonna have to have a way to show our customers like a menu on their phone instead of like people aren't gonna want to touch things. Can you guys do anything? And so I didn't program at the time. Um, I'm just you know start starting to learn now. But Dan had started programming about a year prior to to this, so he's been programming for like three to four years uh, today. But at the time, he was playing around with QR codes, and I was just like, man, it, it seems like it'd be easy to take a PDF and link it to a QR code in some capacity. And Dan went and programmed something. And all of a sudden, like we launched this, this digital menu platform as a way to get accounts in quickly uh, because they can do that all by themselves. They can upload a PDF, QR code spit out. You don't need a sales rep for that. You don't have to charge anything for that. There's very low barrier. And now all of a sudden we have an incredible sales pipeline for the order and pay system. So we're getting all these accounts in and getting them comfortable with our system. And then we're trying to upsell them over time. Like, hey, have you considered letting your customers order and pay through this stuff? So that's kind of how we got to to where we are today with Barclay. Mm. And are those uh, paid accounts? I mean, that sounds like a large number, 15,000 accounts. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. There's, um, I'd say a third of them are paid accounts, roughly. So, so most of them are using like a free digital menu plan. But then within the digital menus, we have, you know, certain features that are upcharged, the order and pay system, obviously, you're paying for that, that's a monthly subscription and some transactional revenue. Uh, so I would say about of the, the 15 or so, yeah, a third of them are, are actually paying customers, the rest, we haven't upsold them well enough yet. 
And and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're you've raised a couple million or a, around a million in funding for this. Yeah, it's 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 just about a million at this point. We've never done a Series A. We did you know a friends and family round back in 2015. We did a gap round in 2017 or 2018. We did another gap round. Basically, the revenue was never equaling what we thought we would need to get any type of valuation that made sense. So we just you know through safes or uh, convertible notes, we just kept taking on whatever we would need to survive the next couple months. And then, you know, we've gotten to the point now where I think we're ready to start having those conversations in terms of actually having like a proper series A and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, f- even 5,000 paid accounts. Uh, can you give me a, a ballpark? I don't know how transparent you guys are with revenue, but where where each account is, like is $100 a month or couple hundred or less than that. That's yeah, that's I mean, like we have some of the order and pay accounts will be several thousand dollars a month um, because of the transactional. So if you get like a super high volume brewery or beer garden, like those, those are where we make the the majority of like the transactional revenue. But the majority of like our digital menu accounts, they're just a monthly subscription. 24 bucks is is the most common. We have one that's $59. There's a handful of like super premier locations that use those, but the majority of the paids are going to be in that $24 a month range. Gotcha. Okay. So you're looking at like roughly like a million dollar a month business at this point? Not, not quite that high. Um, but if, if, if things continue, I would say by the end of this year, that would, that would probably be realistic. Yeah. Awesome. So, all right. So now you're, you got this business that seems to be going really well. COVID positively impacted a business selling into the restaurant and bar industry, which is unusual unless you're selling like adaptation, which would be menu QR codes, or maybe those plastic barriers or some other thing that's specific to COVID. Uh, Lupin Hastings. So how did, how did you then decide to launch a new business or entity or how did that evolve? So this is where the the rabbit holes or you know the learnings from from the years of watching Bitcoin is kind of gonna gonna take over. But in essence, when when we first started paying attention to it, like I said back in I don't know if it was exactly 2014 or 2015, it was before Ethereum was out there, and it was before Bitcoin had really hit the mainstream. Um, so to us, like there was no notion of like digital gold or a, an investment speculation. It was all about this is a technology that's really fast and really cheap for payments. And that was something that we could apply to bar pay, or at least we could see that going to bar pay. Uh, And at the time, I think Bitcoin was maybe like a 1000 bucks per coin. So you're not really thinking about, you know, oh, this is going to a million dollars over. It's just like this technology is really cool. Well, the only reason it even got to that value prior was because developers were using Bitcoin to pay each other. It's a lot easier for someone in America to send someone uh, in Canada or in India or wherever Bitcoin than to have to, you know, send them a wire or a money transfer or something like that. And so that's why the original value of it started to increase. You had these developers paying each other with it for work done. And that was what was causing the price to go up. Well, 2015, 2016, mainstream gets a wind of it. People start hearing about, oh, this thing, Bitcoin was like $10 four years ago. Now it's $1,000, you know, invest, invest. And all of a sudden you get more people trying to get in, more and more transactions going into each block. Now all of a sudden the blocks are starting to, I'm sorry, not the blocks, but the transactions are starting to slow down in terms of confirmation time. And the fees are starting to increase if you actually want your transaction included in the next block. So if you still want it to be a quick transaction, you're going to have to pay more for that. And from our perspective, it's like, wait a minute, like, 
this isn't peer-to-peer cash. This is not what the the white paper that Satoshi wrote, this is not what he's talking about. Like, if I'm going to go buy a cup of coffee for five bucks and pay $7 in fees, like no one's going to use that on a daily basis as peer-to-peer cash. And this is where you get two different mindsets within the crypto community. You have the small blockers and the big blockers. Uh, small blockers would argue that, you know, Bitcoin is not supposed to scale to the masses. Uh, it's not supposed to have, you know, government regulation or intervention because then all of a sudden it's not decentralized, which my opinion is that uh, people that would make that argument have missed what Satoshi actually wanted when he talked about decentralization. In my opinion, what decentralization means is that the protocol cannot be changed. There is not a governing body that can make adjustments to the protocol of Bitcoin, which if you look at what's happened to BTC, there have been protocol changes. So they say they think decentralization is the ability for everyone to have a node in their pocket and that keeps things decentralized. But that is not, at least in my opinion, what Satoshi was actually talking about when when he was saying, you know, decentralization, it had to do with the protocol being locked. And the reason I think that makes sense how many different times has the internet changed? Like it, it doesn't. You have HTTPS, right? That is the protocol. You have businesses, companies that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to create products for the web. Well, if that web protocol is changing every couple months, like those companies, like y- you just can't spend that type of money to build something on a protocol that you don't know if it's going to be the same tomorrow. So I think that's a huge aspect that a lot of people have probably not comprehended or haven't really considered in terms of why, you know, blockchains are doing or, or should do what they're supposed to. So uh, the particular chain that, that Haste Arcade runs on uh, is called Bitcoin SV, and it's one of the forks of Bitcoin. It's uh, a coin that most people who have at least heard of it probably think it's a scam or it's a fraud. But in my opinion, what it does is it, it stays true to that white paper vision of peer-to-peer electronic cash. So I can still spend $5 in BSV and pay an extremely small amount in terms of transaction fees and see that transaction show up you know, immediately. And how that ties into the arcade is that last year, uh, in January, we were sitting there in the office and I can't tell you like how many of my friends I had you know, introduced to Bitcoin. They buy BTC, they're making all this money. I sold all my BTC a long time ago into Bitcoin Cash, which is BCH. That was the first fork because to me, it was like, well, BTC, I can't use it for anything. Bitcoin Cash, I can still use it for fast, casual transactions. That's where I think like utility, I think that's what's going to create value. Obviously, everyone else is going to see this and they're going to do the same thing as me. That didn't end up happening. Obviously, BTC continued to pump and, and BCH didn't do much. BCH ended up forking into Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, Satoshi Vision, BSV. Uh, and between those two, I looked at, you know, the the team behind BCH, they were basically pushing for, you know, we don't want any government regulation. We want this to be a complete, you know, coin that's, I don't want to use the word like anarchy, but basically something that's outside the realm of law. And then you had the, the Bitcoin SV community that was saying, no, in order to get true global adoption and scale, you have to have uh, you know, government interventions. Like it's it's a nice thought to say we don't need any government or we don't need any banks. But the truth is, at least in today's world, like you're not just going to be able to eradicate them. Like government is going to exist. Government needs to be involved. And the Bitcoin SV uh, community is is open to that and wanting to work with governments to get the technology adopted on a global scale. And so to me, it just seems like, you know, if blockchain is going to change the world the way that people talk about it, 
I feel like it's going to have to be through the implementation of actual, you know, daily transactions as cash and being able to work with governments uh, and, and regulators to make sure that, you know, people aren't getting scammed, which, you know, today is a pretty interesting day to be talking about crypto, seeing that the entire market's crashing. So, um, yeah, so, so in essence, to, to make a long story short, um, the arcade came about because in January, we're watching the price of BTC go up. We're watching the price of BSV stay the same, like a hundred bucks. And we're just like, man, why aren't people getting it? Like whatever this BTC thing is, in in my opinion, there's no actual utility. So where's the value coming from? Like, why are people buying into this? It's it's It seems to me it's only because someone else is like, hey, you should buy into this. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard that before. It, it sounds kind of like a Ponzi scheme, to be honest. Whereas with, with BSV... I can use it. I can go and use it in my application. I can use it in other applications. I can spend it as cash. And so we're sitting in the office and we're just like, man, what could we build to show people, hey, here's an actual use case for blockchain technology in the form of micropayments, which that's a whole nother topic, but basically to get from web two to web three. And when I say web two, I mean like an ad based model of, of, you know, the internet. So, you know, you're on Instagram or you're reading an article on the New York Times or whatever. You might think it's free, but if you had to create an account, guess what? Like that company is monetizing your data. So you yourself are the product. And to get away from that and get to web three, I think it's going to require micropayments. So instead of me having to sign up with New York Times and create a $15 a month subscription, I'm just going to pay, you know, two cents at a time while I'm reading an article. So I read two paragraphs, I pay two cents. I read two more paragraphs, I pay two more cents, and on and on and on. And what this actually does, at least in my opinion, is that it makes it way easier for the the content creators to monetize originally, but also then it, it gives the actual, you know, person that's reading that, it gives them their data back. And it allows them to, you know, do things that they would not have previously been able to do. And so the whole point of the micropayments and why that's relevant, because these credit card processing rates, like you could not do that today, scrolling through New York Times, and then charging a credit card three cents to read a paragraph, it just it doesn't work because of those fixed fees that we had talked about earlier. And and that's where, like, we we create this game. And this is the original concept of of demonstrating a micropayment. It was just, you tap start game on your phone, screen would go blank, a little dot would pop up. And the whole point of the game was just tap the dot as fast as you can, wherever it shows up on your screen randomly. However fast you tap it, say your time is, you know, 326 milliseconds, you end up somewhere on the board. Okay, so you might have the fastest time, let's say you're number one. Well, there's 100 people now on this board on this leaderboard. And let's say to play that game, you played for a penny, you could play at multiple levels, a penny, a dime, a dollar, whatever your spending appetite is. But let's say you played for a penny. I come in and I play after you. I spend my penny. Before I even play the game, that penny is broken up into a hundred little pieces. So we're talking a one hundredth of a cent and you just got deposited one of those one hundredths of a cent. So you just made a micropayment from being on this leaderboard. Then I play, if I get on the leaderboard, I'll get paid from every subsequent gameplay where someone's spending a penny. And that'll go on for as long as I'm on the leaderboard. So we called it instant leaderboard payouts, really simple you know, game called Haste. And it was running on this this Bitcoin SV and that community just jumped all over it. They loved it. They're like, wow, this is an incredible like visual demonstration of how simple and cool micropayments are. I mean, we had people and we still do 
they're spending a penny or 10 cents to play a game and they're making hundreds of dollars, you know, in a week just from being on that leaderboard. So, you know, we started seeing real money being earned by these people. It's like, dang, this is, this is really cool. And we didn't have a plan to, to do anything else. We just wanted to show something like to our friends, like, Hey guys, like this is what we think Bitcoin should be like. But we had some investors start reaching out the the Bitcoin SV community. They were, you know, asking us what's next. Like, are you guys putting out more games? Are you going to build a platform? What's the move here? So we ended up um, raising about a million and a half dollars last year to hire some of the people we'd worked with with BarPay, brought them over to get them working full time on Haste, uh, and and basically build out a full arcade experience with a, a software developer kit that will allow third party gamers to submit their games and use our instant leaderboard payout technology as a incentive mechanism for uh, for gamers to, to continue playing those games. So that's kind of how we got to where Haste is today. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has just until now only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, it's the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Hmm. And just recapping what haste is, do you specifically look at the product roadmap as the the leaderboard? It's like an API for other games to show a leaderboard and pay people out based on where they are on the leaderboard? Yeah, yeah. So as it stands today, the arcade itself is something that we host. It's a website, hastearcade.com. There's about 15 games on there. We've built six or seven of them in-house. There have been seven or eight games that have been submitted by third-party game developers. And, you know, it's still really early. BSV is a technology that not a lot of people have heard. Uh, But the the long-term vision would be, okay, we have this SDK. You know, what does it look like when Call of Duty, you know, wants to implement leaderboard payouts for headshots within their online arena or kill the death ratios? So now you have people who are gamers I mean, do you want to risk 10 cents to, to see if you can make a kill death ratio leaderboard? And, you know, now you're competing against millions of other people is it's just 10 cents or it's a penny. You know, it adds a little bit more, you know, fun or interest to the game itself. It's kind of like when people bet on sports, it gives you a little bit more interest in the game when you're actually watching it. Well, now you're basically able to do that on yourself within, you know, different different games. So long-term vision would be, yeah, get the leaderboard payout structure into major AAA studio games. But for now, and I, I would say probably for at least the next year or so, it's going to be games that we build in-house and then smaller indie developers until, you know, you have we have a user base of millions of people where the, the big studios mm-hmm. actually take us seriously. And the, the structure of the payment flow is that people will, they will buy BSV uh, somewhere on exchange, they'll move it into a wallet on Hastings Arcade, and then they'll place a a bet effectively whether or not they 
like how how does the how does someone receive like where does the money go into sure. the system in order to come out of it yeah so a couple things number one you could play any game for free in the arcade right now like we have a free mode so if you're not into crypto and you don't want to download a wallet and all that stuff like you don't have to you can still come and experience the games play around before maybe saying like oh okay you know what i've played on the free level my scores are pretty good it looks like i would make a leaderboard you know if i was paying so what you would need to do is download uh, the, the particular wallet that we use within the arcade is called Handcash. It's a, a very nice like user experience for BSV. And you can actually top up and purchase BSV from within that particular wallet. So you can link like a credit card or a debit card. So basically, you, you buy five bucks of BSV on Handcash. That's automatically tied into your Haste Arcade account. And then when you go to actually play a game, you choose what level. So you can do free one cent, ten cents, a dollar, ten dollars, or a hundred dollars, depending on your uh, on your spending appetite. Let's say I'm going to do the one cent level. I hit play. My one cent is actually in the form of satoshis, like you know, cent, and that's where if I think one cent right now is is man, I, I'm probably going to be way off. Like let's say it's fifty thousand satoshis or something like that. So you then split those fifty thousand satoshis and distribute them to everyone that's already on that leaderboard. So the the i guess not the risk but you as the gamer if you play there's nothing that guarantees that you're ever going to make a, a dime or any money off of this so it's not like you're betting that you're going to beat the top score you are just uh spending to to actually get into to the the game itself now if no one ever plays after you like i said you're not going to earn anything but if people play after you and you're on that leaderboard that's where you would see instantly deposited to your hand cash wallet you get a little notification like hey you know joe just paid you 0.0001 cents and and that's basically how the flow of payments works got it got it got it so people buy a, a, a bsv with the incentive of hey i want to be on the leaderboard because then i realize that i'm going to make more money than i bought by joining effectively correct yep yeah interesting did you learn about this model or did you kind of free flow come up with it where, where did the tokenomics of this come from anything similar projects that were similar that inspired you no um at least to our knowledge this is uh the the first of its kind and the way that we came up with it again was like we were sitting in the office in january last year frustrated at you know watching the the price of btc go up and we're just like, man, like, what is the easiest thing we could do to show our friends that you can split a dime a hundred different ways? And so the first thing was just like, okay, well, let's get a hundred outputs, a hundred wallets that, you know, we'll, we'll name each one, one of our friends. And then let's actually use this hand cash, hand cash, the, the wallet that I was just talking about has a, an API for developers where you can basically split any payment to a certain number of outputs. So it was like, okay, we have 100 outputs. Let's put a dime in and see if it actually splits it up and sends you know, a tenth of a penny to every single one of these outputs. And when that worked, it was like, okay, that's really cool. What's going to be the, the trigger? What's going to be the mechanism that actually you know, distributes this? And it's like, well, what if we just created like the, the most simple game you could imagine? Just tap a button and your score is how fast you tap the button. So programmed it. The people really liked it. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of kind of went from there. It's interesting. So how did, did this parlay uh, in a way out of the bar pay app because you, you were thinking of using Bitcoin, then Bitcoin goes up. And then that's kind of where your mind was captivated by crypto, specifically 
Bitcoin versus BSV or Bitcoin Cash. Did you make a decision at a certain point to say we're going to double down on haste and in a way move development resources and your attention away from BarPay? Because after COVID, like it's May 12th, 2022 now, COVID effectively ended, you know, we'll say when restaurants and things opened up maybe, what, a year ago, eight months ago, somewhere. yeah. Yeah. And was that about the time when I mean, during that time, restaurants had a huge demand for QR codes for contactless menus. It seemed like that would have been the same time that you looked at this business and said, hey, now's the time to like double down on bar pay. Like, let's raise money. Let's go get 50,000 or 100,000 businesses. How did how do you how did you decide which how to spend your time? Because it seems like both are interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be honest, like we still do both on a daily basis. Um We've, we're fortunate in the sense that like with haste, because it was pretty new in terms of concept and there was a lot of like excitement around it within, uh, the BSV community and the investors there, we were able to raise that money pretty quickly and build out like the rest of the team so that it would allow us to spend time on both. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was a decision through BarPay. We, we have a, a startup accelerator that invested in us and they invested like literally right before COVID. And so, you know, the plan that we had put in place with with what we were going to use that funds for was completely different than what we ended up doing with it. But they were the ones in general, everyone else at that point was mostly friends and family. So, you know, saying, hey, we want to work on this other project. It's like they're, they're you know, they're going to say, mm-hmm. sure, whatever. Uh, but the accelerator, they were the ones where we're like, you know, we don't know what they're going to say. We didn't launch this thinking it was going to be something because we launched it in January. And now all of a sudden it's like March, April, and it's, it's you know, for all intents and purposes gone viral within this BSV community. So we talked and we're just like, guys, you know, we didn't intend for this to happen. Uh, but this is something that we want to pursue, you know, at the same time as BarPay. We think we can we can try to, to run both. And whether that's, you know, me spending more of my time on, on BarPay, Dan spending more time on Haste or, or vice versa, or some type of combination, we want to try. And they were, you know, we didn't know how they were going to respond, but they were extremely supportive and they ended up investing in haste as well. So it's, it's what was the name of the accelerator? They're called logic boost labs. They're out of San Diego and they're, uh, they're run by a guy named Jonathan Cogley. He's got a pretty cool story. He actually, he bootstrapped his own, uh, security company from like 2005 to 2015, got it to about 10 million bucks uh, a year in revenue sold just over like half of it. So 51% to private equity. He made, I don't know, probably 30 or $40 million there, but the company he sold it to just last year, they ended up growing it to a hundred plus million in revenue annually. And they, they were acquired last year for like 1.4 billion. So Jonathan still had about 30 to 40% of that company. And so he got a nice, another nice little uh, exit payday there from them. But yeah, so logic boost, Jonathan, really cool dude, been extremely supportive and helpful for us. Wow. Interesting. And so he runs an accelerator down in San Diego and invested in both your projects. Yep. Going forward, do you, I mean, my sense is you're more excited about Haste Arcade and the direction that that's going. Uh, is that how you're feeling? I think right now, I mean, yeah, the excitement behind Haste is that every day it's something new. Like there's so many other ideas, so many things on the roadmap that we're building and that, you know, we see basically utility applications for for Bitcoin. And the point wasn't to make like games. It was just be like, what could we build that actually shows the utility aspect of this technology? Whereas BarPay, it's a pretty straightforward company at this point. You know, you have your funnel, you're trying to convert people that are, you know, free accounts to paid accounts. You're trying to advertise to people that are looking for your QR codes. So 
that company, I, I don't want to say it's on like autopilot, but in essence, like the day-to-day operations there are pretty straightforward. Whereas Haste, on any given day, like you don't know what you're going to be talking about. It's just, it's, it's fun. It's exciting. It's, it's new, I guess. Yeah. And how do you feel today about uh, the, the fork of Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash and BSV? Do you still, I mean, in my mind, I think of Bitcoin as having the distinct value proposition of low frequency, low velocity, uh, high security. So, you, you know, if you want to store your wealth, I'm not making daily transactions with coffee, but that I think of that as the purpose of Bitcoin, whereas Bitcoin Cash, it's still kind of up in the air. It may be it's stable coin, probably not, but Bitcoin Cash, certainly compelling anything that's faster than faster and cheaper than Bitcoin. Is, do you see it that same way or do you have another perspective on Bitcoin specifically? Mm-hmm. My perspective would be, and this is, you know, a hot take. This is what a lot of people I think in crypto that would disagree with. I personally think that everything you're doing with BTC, with Ethereum, with tokens and NFTs, you can do on BSV. And we're, we're doing it on BSV. We have tokens, we have NFTs. And that's actually something interesting about the original BTC script and, and code that was written. Um, there's, there was a debate or there was, you know, people thought that, oh, it couldn't do tokens. It couldn't do smart contracts. Well, actually the original programming language it was written in was a very elegant, like antique type language. So it'd be like, you know, if you were to read a book from the 1300s, it'd be like the blah, blah, blah on the fourth day of the, you know, the summer, something like that, you know, kind of like an older school language that most new developers, they just, they didn't understand. So when, when, when Satoshi handed over the GitHub repository keys to uh, Gavin Andreessen and the, the the developers started getting into it, they were going through the code and they just they found this section about touring that they they didn't understand and they just kind of like slashed it out. So it just it, it went you know they just got rid of it in the code and that's where Vitalik you know he's like wait a minute like we we need to be able to do smart contracts this is going to be a big deal smart contracts being tokens. Um, but most of the community is like, no, that's going to be spam. We're not interested in that. And so basically Vitalik went and started his own chain that supported smart contracts. Well, what's interesting is you then have uh, a gentleman named Craig Wright, who people, if you've heard that name, you either hate him or you think he's, he's Satoshi. Uh, but in essence, he goes out in 2014 on some panel where no one's ever heard of him before. And he starts saying, no, Bitcoin is, it's touring complete. You can do contracts. I'm sorry, smart contracts and tokens right now. And what he was actually talking about was that specific area of the original Bitcoin code that had been previously etched out by the developers just because they didn't know what it what it was. And so that has been re-implemented in BSV. It's been like BSV basically has been restored to the original uh, programming and code of Bitcoin when it launched in 2009, which Satoshi said, it can scale today faster and better than MasterCard and Visa. And what I mean by that is, and I'll, I'll tie it back into your original question, is that you have the Visa network, which is the current um, you know, gold standard for payment processing. At its peak, it can process roughly 25,000 transactions per second at a cost of, like we said, about 2 to 4 or 5% per transaction. You have BTC, which can do 7 transactions per second at a cost of anywhere between you know, $1 to $50, depending on how much volume is going through at the moment. Ethereum, 15 transactions per second, 25 to 50 bucks. Bitcoin Cash, 160, I think, transactions per second fractions of a penny to send that Bitcoin SV, 100,000 plus transactions per second, which I've seen in person, again, for for a fraction of the cost, a fraction of a cent to actually transact that. So as you're thinking, you know, which of these technologies is going to replace or disrupt the current gold standard of Visa, the only one that I see is, is BSV. So in terms of 
the whole store of value narrative, I don't really buy into that. I don't think Bitcoin was ever invented to be strictly a store of value. I think that, you know, that is one of the things that can facilitate. But again, I'm going to go back to the, the very title of the Bitcoin white paper. It's a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. The, the notion of digital gold is not mentioned in the white paper one time. And I think that the only way that it really is supposed to increase in value is through utility and through scarcity. So BTC has scarcity. There's 21 million of them. Uh, but the utility, in my opinion, just just isn't there. And so BSV, it, it has everything that BTC has, plus it has utility. So that's that's kind of what I've been focused on and, and what we're trying to do with Haste is just show the utility of the blockchain. Hmm. And why do you think that that is not common, commonly known, commonly understood? And so this is, this is where uh, we put our tinfoil hats on a little bit and, and go down the rabbit hole. But if, uh, and this is, you know, you can go on Crunchbase if you know what that is and you can, you can look all this up on your own. But basically around 2015, there were a series of events that occurred that kind of derailed BTC from the peer-to-peer cash. And what ended up happening, uh, a, a company called Blockstream took over the development. Blockstream is financed in general by Digital Currency Group. Digital Currency Group, their largest or one of their largest backers, especially in 2015, was MasterCard Ventures. Uh, MasterCard, if you think about it, they're processing you know a trillion or $2 trillion dollars annually in terms of like the total amount of money that's being spent, what interest would they have in a currency that basically cuts them out? You know, it's it's a classic, it's it's Netflix versus Blockbuster. Blockbuster should have just bought Netflix and, and shut them down, which is basically what Digital Currency Group did through Blockstream to BTC. And so in essence, they came in, Digital Currency Group also owns Coindesk. It owns a lot of, uh, uh, or it owns a, a large share, I believe, in like Binance, Coinbase, all the major exchanges. And they basically, around 2015, started changing the narrative of what Bitcoin is from peer-to-peer cash to digital gold. And it's something that you buy and you hold. So you're not actually using it because that then doesn't disrupt MasterCard's business of we're the thing that people use on a daily basis. So I think the reason why a lot of people don't know this information is because if you go look up or you go on Coinbase right now and you try to buy crypto, you get a pop-up that says, you know, cryptocurrency can be slow and expensive, you know, please allow some time. That's just not true. Like that's that's a blatant in my opinion like lie and it's it's purposely to persuade people or to, you know, convince people of something that is not what the original intention was and what the actual technology can still do. So I think the the reason is that you have these companies that control the current flow of money and they don't want to lose that power, which I can totally understand. That makes perfect sense. So that's that's to answer your question. I think that's why, you know, this isn't very general knowledge. And do you think that the the complexity of the, the complexity and the, the vagueness of the incentives is what makes it uh, makes the information dissemination confusing and lackluster another way of saying it is like do you think a lot of this what you're describing is this this financial incentive of visa mastercard which fund dsg which fund blockstream that do the building that incentive whatever communication is happening there is happening on private emails or conversations and they're making it clear they being mastercard visas of the world that they don't want bitcoin to have the branding of cash and that effectively that that incentive system carried downstream that the stakeholders of of DSG felt pressured uh, or 
DCG, DSG? DCG, yeah. DCG, DCG yeah. Pressure. They said, okay, well, we have to, we have to abide by our investors, MasterCard, in order to, you know, keep this business alive. And so it's just a, it's just a, it's a, a domino effect of incentives from whoever is funding development of BTC, which was MasterCard. So that, do you, is that, does that line up with your understanding of it? Personally, yes, that is what I believe. Now, is that actually what's happening? I don't know. But I think, you know, you could make an argument where it's like, well, no, the the point of, you know, an investor and, and a board of directors and a CEO is to actually create a return for those investors. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that there haven't been incredible returns on BTC. Like if, if that was the goal, how, how are we going to monetize this? Then I think, you know, they've probably done a pretty good job of doing that. Do I think that there are absolutely ulterior motives though? Personally, yes, I do. I think that these companies have made it extremely clear in their closed door meetings that we cannot allow peer-to-peer cash to get out into the open because that will really, really affect our current business models where we're already, you know, basically controlling the money flow in the world. Yeah. And it seems like, it almost seems like you're trying to like MasterCard or Visa through their funding of these efforts is trying to plug the, the Nile River with with sticks and and rocks. Like it, it seems like okay, great, you can fund a development team that's going to build on Bitcoin, that's going to convince the community to move in this particular direction that increases transaction costs and make it more positioned as a long term store of value as opposed to cash. Yep. That's their covert mission success. But then there's still a, a, a massive global pent-up demand for uh, decentralized crypto cash. So it's it just seems like w- once that happens, there's going to be a fork, there's going to be adoption. Do you view us as just at this point in May 2022, we're just in this period of undiscovery? Like you know, BSV and, and your narrative is is the currency that solves the problem of international ubiquitous fast cheap transactions but it just hasn't been what discovered or uh brought to people's attention i I think i think you're 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 right on point i think that what has basically happened with bsv um craig wright who i brought up earlier you know he's on record multiple times saying these exchanges are they're quote-unquote bucket shops they're casinos like what they're doing is not necessarily legal and they're basically frauding people in terms of telling them to buy this thing called bitcoin that isn't actually bitcoin as defined by the white paper and so he goes out and says this stuff publicly well guess what like those exchanges are like hey craig like you know go kick rocks like we're not listing bsv like you know you're 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 hurting yourself by talking trash on us we're just not going to list yeah. this coin that that you're working on and that you're supporting at this point so i i think that's a little bit of it i think the rest of it though is is kind of what you said it's like you know there is this large demand there is all this you know interest in blockchain and decentralized finance and whatnot uh, but the majority of the projects that are that are being worked on and the ones that are on these different exchanges you can you can follow the money and it really all goes back to a handful of of central sources. I mean, you look at the different things Digital Currency Group has invested in, it's a lot of the projects that get a lot of, you know, press and glamour and glitz, but what actual, you know, companies have been built on them. I mean, I've never personally seen a crypto advertisement for anything other than an exchange or an NFT drop. And that to me, that's not disruptive. Like if everyone's saying blockchain is disrupting all these industries, what is that disrupting? You're just exchanging money. Like we already have foreign currency exchanges, you know, we already have this type of stuff. There, there has not been an industry yet that has actually been disrupted by blockchain. And I think that is 
uh, by design by by the people that right now are controlling you know the mainstream narrative of of what crypto is. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And do you think of it as a branding um, stagnation? Like if BSG exists, then maybe Craig Wright has um, ineffectively branded it where he's introduced more of a confrontation and and thus kind of position exchanges as evil or somehow corrupt. And then they're less likely to adopt BSV, but that we're just in this period of time where this guy decided to brand BSV in this, in this way, which is ineffective, but it's still, to me, I look at it as there's an enormous need for people to have international fast, cheap cash. And that's trustful. That's secure. Uh, maybe BSV is the one that will get adopted. Maybe it's another crypto, but it, it, BSV seems like it's capable of solving this problem. Are we just in this point of like, the only reason it hasn't been distributed, disseminated, adopted is people don't understand it? That is kind of how you you think about it? I think that's a really fair assessment. Yes. I think that um, where we are in history, if if you're going to look at blockchain, I think right now it's easy to to think like, oh, BTC is one or, you know, one crypto is the one and this is going to be like this forever. I think that when you're looking back 100 years from now, if blockchain actually has gotten adopted, people like won't even remember what's going on right now. They'll be like, oh yeah, the early days of crypto were wild. There were like all these different things going on and prices and all this stuff. But I would say, you know, 10 years from now, even five years from now, I think it's going to be a much different landscape in terms of blockchain. And in terms of BSV, like, yeah, there, there's there's branding issues. This is stuff that, you know, a lot of the other companies will talk about because we we work together on different projects. And it's like, man, you know, I tell one of my friends to go buy some BSV. They Google it. And the first thing that comes up is like, oh, Craig writes a scam. And it's just like, you know, get get past the headline. And let's actually just look at the technology. I don't care if Craig is Satoshi personally, or if he isn't like to me, the tech just works the way that I need it to work for these micro payments and for these NFTs and these tokens that we have. So Craig Wright does not play into to my personal business whatsoever, where where that whole thing plays into is, you know, you have the the crypto world on Twitter who think that, you know, Craig is a fraud and anything he's ever been involved with is, is a joke like BSV. But I think, you know, as time goes on, and it's funny, I was, I was talking to Dan earlier today, and he was like, you know, people will, will who think BTC is already won, it's like that's saying AOL won in, in 2003, right? Like, where's AOL today versus everything else? So I think there's a whole, a whole lot that still needs to happen. I mean, like I just mentioned, you still haven't even seen any mainstream companies that have built something with blockchain. All you've seen are the exchanges or the, the NFT digital art drops. Until you start seeing real companies using this to do things, I, I would just say it's going to be the wild, wild west. Mm, yeah, I think that's the right way to think about it. Because just like a you know uh, a dollar coin or a two dollar bill or really anything that holds um, value that's not structurally useful, it's not. It's not. If I think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like if it's not helping me build a house, get food move somewhere 
then the value of it is up to me to decide what it's worth. Like, you know, art being the tip of the sphere, currency also being the, the tip of that tip of that pyramid. And the currency of the US dollar, the value of it is effectively backed by the structure of this country, the ideas that we have behind the organization of the country, the Federal Reserve. And so there, there is that history that makes the US dollar prevalent. And people understand that. And that's also the way that currency has been formed and circulated through a long, a long time. And then I think that I think of the advantage that Bitcoin, one of the advantages that Bitcoin specifically has for branding is that it was the first, it is currently the largest, and it is, uh, doesn't have a, it doesn't have a founder. It's, it's almost like that acts I don't know if you push back on that, but I think the fact that it doesn't have a, a origin team, a founding team kind of acts to its advantage. Um, it, it does seem to me like it could go one of two ways. I don't know. Really, it's almost like a collective psychological question, which is mm-hmm. if there's a, if there's a currency that is just widespread across the earth, does that make it more stable or less stable? It, it take purely, purely the case of a Bitcoin. Uh, like example, like a decentralized blockchain based cryptocurrency. If everyone is using it, does that make it more stable or less stable? Well, you could kind of argue either way. You could say, well, once it's hit mass adoption, then there's network effects. But then you could also say, just like the example of a monopoly, when there's a monopoly, that also means there's a, there's, that's the perfect time for a new entrant to come in with a new technology that disrupts mm-hmm. it because it's hard to change when you have total market share. So I, I wonder about that. I also completely agree with you that the adoption of companies by cryptocurrency or adoption of cryptocurrency by companies is what what makes the currency stick and stay for a long period of time. Otherwise, it really is subject to volatility day to day and week to week, however people perceive it. Uh, it does seem to me, though, that there is a lot of adoption currently. Like I see a lot of people use... Um, Bitcoin and stable coins to pay each other, particularly across borders. I don't know what percentage of the market it is. I know remittances, I think is around, a, I've heard two and a half, 2.2 to two and a half trillion dollar market, people sending money b- b- across borders internationally. Yep. I don't know what percentage, but I, I don't think it's trivial. I, 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 I think it's quite large. Um, it seems like that would continue to grow, although that's not a company adopting cryptocurrency yeah that's just using you know as as using using it and i i think i think you're 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 hitting on a lot of like really good topics and and things that people should start thinking about um i would say where companies should start using this the the easiest thing that comes to mind would be like a loyalty token i mean if you've already got a loyalty program let's use like a casino for an example, right? I'm watching TV, I see like, join MGM rewards. And every time you stay at the MGM grand, you know, you earn points that you can then redeem for shows within the MGM. It's like, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I go to the MGM, I play, I get my points, I go to a show, cool. Well, it's the same concept with with loyalty tokens. But now because they're actually native to a blockchain, you can exchange them, 
you can run them on an exchange where, okay, maybe I stay at the MGM, but maybe the shows over at the Bellagio are way more exciting than the shows at the MGM. So I can now exchange my MGM points, my MGM tokens that I've worked so hard to accumulate into Bellagio tokens just for that specific show. Because when I'm paying with tokens, I get a 20% discount or something like that. I think that's where you know a, a super simple entry point for a lot of companies would be create a loyalty token that runs on the blockchain as opposed to just your own loyalty point system. Because now customers, you know, maybe I'm exchanging it into Bellagio, maybe I'm exchanging it right into cash. And that's something that you can't do, you know, outside of maybe like credit card, you know, cash back points or whatever it is. So I, I think that, you know, that would be a great jump off place for, for that. But then the other aspect of why I think uh, peer-to-peer cash and small microtransactions are so important is in the sense of data storage and sending data. So basically, the the thought process behind BSV and and big blocks in general, for those that aren't familiar with this term, it might be a little bit technical. But in essence, on, on BTC, you have a one megabyte block size limit. So that means you can fit one megabyte worth of information into a block. So if we're picturing a block as like a shoebox, let's say you can fit a thousand sheets of paper into that one shoebox. Well, on BSV, the shoebox has no lid. So you can fit 100,000, a million different, you know, sheets of paper. And a transaction doesn't just have to be me paying you for something. A transaction, like I said, could be, you know, oh, I'm scrolling through an article and I'm reading this information and I'm paying, you know, a tenth of a cent to, to take in that information. It could be sending emails where instead of using Google server, I'm now just sending an encrypted message on the blockchain that the receiver can read if they get the private key. And so I'm only paying, you know, a one hundredth of a penny to actually send that email. But I now know for a fact that there is no third party that's going to be able to access what I like the message that I just sent to you if, if, if it's some type of sensitive information. And in order to actually have that level of adoption, you have to have a blockchain that can do hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions per second. And so that's why, again, I just I think that uh, you know, the the chains with the big blocks and I'll, I'll throw Solana. Like I, I think Solana is actually a pretty, a pretty legitimate blockchain just in terms of what they're going for. Um, you know, they can do 50,000 plus transactions a second. The fees are extremely small. I'm not a huge fan that they're proof of stake versus proof of work blockchain, which is a whole nother conversation we have to get into. Um, but in essence, I think the blockchain or the handful of blockchains that will be utilized in the future, they're going to have to incorporate that if, you know, we're, we're truly looking for a global adoption of this quote unquote, you know, revolutionary technology. So again, I think that just argues for companies like BSV, I'm sorry, not companies, blockchains like BSV and shows, you know, somewhat of the, the, the non-purpose of, of a BTC other than it, it has, you know, the original ticker symbol. Yeah. Is there any steelman argument that's commonly given uh, in opposition to the specifically the, the story of uh, DCG funding Blockstream with the incentive of uh, MasterCard? Like, is, is there a uh, this is the first time I've heard of it? And to me, I certainly believe that large companies, you know, when you look at like upwards of hundreds of billions or pushing a trillion dollar market cap in any industry, whether it's healthcare or finance or anything, the military, that they are very aware of what will potentially uh, outpace them, out-innovate them, disrupt them. You know, they know that that's the game and they know that that's the biggest threat to their existence. And so I believe that they spend a lot of money and a lot of attention to figure out how to disrupt 
those early cracks, you know, those early innovators before, or there's early potentials for disruption way before they become too large to handle. Like people have learned from the, the blockbuster Netflix story where it's like, okay, everyone knows if you were in blockbuster shoes, you should have been either investing in a company like Netflix, buying Netflix or killing Netflix. You can't ignore Netflix. And to me, it makes perfect sense that especially given the decentralized nature of it, it's almost more vulnerable to corruption in that way, where they're not doing anything illegal. They're just purely funding development to an open source project with their own personal financial incentives. So th- you can't say that they did anything. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're legal, free to right? do whatever they want. Yeah. Free to do whatever they want. Uh, is, is there any pushback that you commonly see people give to this story where, you know, hey, I don't know, that DCG really didn't have a big stake or MasterCard didn't have a big stake in DCG or... Or do you just think the story, because even, even so the story you gave makes perfect sense to me. So yeah, I'm wondering, is there something that you've seen that people push back on? Um, there, there isn't a whole lot of pushback on that just cause it's fairly like you can go and research it. Like you can go on Crunchbase, yeah. like I said, you can see specifically, you know, who invested, what the amounts were and all that stuff. And it's, you can't really argue with that. I think where the, the community, you know, is divided is, was it actually, you know, nefarious what they're wanting to do or is and and it really comes down to the whole big block versus small block ideology it's like well what is bitcoin what should it be used for should it be a a store of value or should it be peer-to-peer cash and there i mean i'm i'm i can understand the store of value argument as well uh but to me personally i i just like i think that the real value is going to come from the utility of of what an actual blockchain can do so that's why i'm you know, partial to the big blocks, partial to to BSV. But at the same time, you know, I understand that people would be interested in a, a, you know, digital asset that can basically serve as a gold if, you know, if we were to somehow, you know, back like US currency with, with Bitcoin, right? That's, that's in essence, you know, going to a gold standard, but instead of using actual gold, you're using some technology that the fundamentals are, are math in, in all mm-hmm. intents and purposes. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I I do think about, you know, sometimes if I would have kept all my BTC and if I was still looking at things through that lens where it's like, you know, oh, I would have just made $20 million and I think that this BSV thing is a scam too. Like, why are they trying to take down this thing that made me, you know, wealthy and all that? But at the same time, I just keep going back to if the title of the white paper is peer-to-peer electronic yeah. cash, like it, it seems like that's a pretty clear <laughs> idea of what this is supposed to supposed to be and supposed to do. Yeah, I I don't, I don't think that you would, if you were sitting in that position, having just made a lot of unrealized gains in BTC, that you would then come to the conclusion that BSV or anything else is necessarily fraudulent or corrupt or wrong in any way, you just most likely wouldn't be paying attention to it. I I think that's, yeah, you just, you say, well, this is, this is what's growing. This is what people are talking about. Let me join the like hashtag BTC uh, Twitter conversations and, and be another person trying to say how great it is and keep the train going. So yep. it's interesting, man. Um, do you have any thoughts on the recent like crash? So May 12th today, I, I think about three days ago, the market seemingly went dove off a cliff. Specifically, I, it seemed like Luna was a big part of this. The sta- um, 
algorithmically pegged stablecoin went from roughly a dollar in value to roughly, I, I think, five cents, two cents, yeah. something like that. Uh, have you researched this or dove into what's been going on? You know, I, I read a couple articles about it. Um, my understanding is that like the the Luna that, you know, was was backing it or whatever had like the $18 billion market cap, but it was only like 20% collateralized on that actual money. I, I don't, to be honest, I'm not that well versed in, in specifically what happened there. And in terms of like paying attention to the overall market, you know, having a, a really rough week. If, if you're looking at this stuff as a technology and not at the price, like the, the metrics that I look at are probably not what most people are looking at. So for example, when I'm measuring the success or the failure of a blockchain, I'm looking at the amount of transactions it's putting on chain every single day and the cost, the fees associated with those transactions. And when I look at those metrics, and maybe it is because, you know, I'm looking at metrics that I like, it's, it's BSV does more transactions in a single day than every other blockchain combined. And it's not even close. It's like millions mm. and millions compared to like a million. It's, it's really, there, there is no competition in terms where of do you, speed, Where do you no, look? What are your, uh, your resources that you, you let me, use to find these stats? Any specific sites? Is it? Yeah, it's, it's just, if you go to BitInfo Charts, I think is the one. Yeah, BitInfo Charts, you can basically click a bunch of the different coins there. And then you can compare, you can just look at the charts that they have and they'll show you like price, for example. So price in USD and you'll see like BTC goes like this. BSV goes like this. Ethereum goes like this, whatever. But then you can change the metric. So instead of price, if you go to transactions, you know, on a daily basis, you'll start seeing BSV goes like this, BTC goes like this, Ethereum goes like this. You look at cost per transaction, fees like go extremely high on the BTCs. Uh, BSV stays really low. There's even, and, and this is where, again, you get into the conspiracy aspect of it. There are some metrics that BSV, they won't even show it on there because it's so much better than, than what the competition is doing, where you won't even be able to see like the BSV, I don't know, cost per transaction because they're comparing, you know, a one hundredth of a cent to $7. It's just, they, they don't even show it. So yeah, wow. BitInfo charts is, is where I would typically go to, to look at that information. And that's where I check my metrics. And then the other thing I'll say, um, and this goes into some of like the, the economic incentive of what actually keeps a blockchain running. And this is another reason why, you know, I would really encourage people if you're thinking about, you know, quote unquote, getting in or investing, have some type of understanding of the economic incentives for the people that actually uphold the blockchains. And those would be the miners. So in essence, real quick on mining, these are basically people who are running really powerful computers that are trying to solve, you know, uh, one random transaction equation within each individual block. And so the way that this works is typically every 10 minutes, uh, a block gets solved, meaning one of these supercomputers finds, you know, the, the secret transaction or whatever it is that they're looking for. It's like six zeros at the beginning of, of a transaction or something like that. And so based on how many different people are mining, the difficulty of finding this one particular, you know, string uh, gets more difficult or easier depending on on how many people are mining. And so it, it typically averages out where you'll be able to find one of these transactions within uh, roughly 10 minutes. And that's when a new block then gets created. So in essence, how this ties together and the economic incentive, when you, it's called solving a block, when you solve a block, so you find that transaction, you get what's called the block reward. So today, on BTC, Bitcoin Cash, BSV, the block reward is the same. You get six and a half uh, Bitcoins 
for solving that block. You also get all the transaction fees that are associated within that block. So right now, you know, the price of BTC is 29,000, 30,000 bucks or whatever. So you're getting that times six and a half plus whatever all the transaction fees are within that block. And right now, I think that it comes out to be about five Bitcoins on top of that six and a half block reward. So for all intents and purposes, I'm a miner. I solve a block. I'm making 11 and a half Bitcoins today. Now on BSV, the same is true. You're getting your six and a half BSVs in return, but those are only worth, you know, 50 bucks today. So six and a half times 50 is a lot less than six and a half times 30,000. Now where it gets interesting is and this is something too, I, I don't know if they show it on BitInfo charts, but there are there are sites where you can find this. The actual amount of cost that you are going to incur as the miner to mine a BTC transaction or block compared to a BSV transaction or block is roughly the same ratio as the price of BTC to BSV. So let's just say mm. it costs, you know, a thousand dollars to to solve a block on BTC. It costs ten dollars to solve a block on BSV. So the reward in terms of what you spent to get that reward is basically going to average out. So let's just call it, you know, four hundred to one is basically how it works in terms of the reward versus what it costs you to get that reward. Now, the economic incentive, and this is the part that I think is extremely important for people to get a grip on, and why big blocks, in my opinion, are the only ones that will survive in the long run, is that we know that BTC has capped their block size at one megabyte. We know that the transaction value, the transaction rewards for those blocks is basically going to cap out around four or five you know, Bitcoins on top of whatever that six and a half block reward was. Well, with BSV, because the blocks are unlimited, you can have hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of transactions in each block, you're going to have a lot more transaction fees per block solved. So right now, BTC and BSV, BSV will actually in total as a miner for solving a block, you'll get like a total reward closer to 14 or 15 Bitcoins, whereas BTC, you're getting 11. So I spent $100 on BSV in mining, I make 150 bucks. I spend $100 mining on BTC, I make 120 bucks. I'm still profitable, but over time, as more and more transactions are put on the BSV blockchain, that's going to go from 15 Bitcoins per block solved to 20, to 50, to 100. So in the end, in the long run, uh, and this is something that Satoshi talked about also, the block rewards are not as important as the transaction fees. 50 years from now, when all the, you know, happenings have happened and the block reward goes from six and a half bitcoins per block to 3.75 to one point blah 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 these things uh for for those of you that don't know the block reward splits roughly every like three to four years i believe it is uh once that's done once the block reward is is no longer you know like one bitcoin you're really as a miner only making money off the transactions so at that point, you need a block that has a ton of transactions or else there is no incentive to mine on BTC. You're going to be spending way more money than you're actually going to be taking in. And I think that is one of the most important economic uh, reasons and incentives to actually mine on a chain that does have big blocks. And I think it's somewhat inevitable that, you know, as the happenings keep happening, uh, the big blocks, the BSV, that's where all the miners are going to point all of their hash power. That's where they're going to be trying to solve blocks. And if that happens, if all the miners leave BTC, the chain stops. Now people can't get their money out. Now it's a complete crash and it's over. So that would be something I'd, I would just say, you know, if you're thinking about getting in, in uh, invested or 
are starting to look at cryptos, like really have a, a fundamental understanding of some of the economic incentives to actually keep these blockchains running. Let me try to quickly recap that and ask you one one final quick question. Uh, so your your stance here is that the ROI for uh, BSV is better than BTC because while they both maintain roughly the same ROI on the uh, uh, mining for the rewards, the transactions are also included. So the miners get the, the transactions plus the block rewards. And because BSV has way higher transactions, the ROI for BSV is better. The second point you made, the second point you made was that uh, in the future, down the road, when the dust is settled, and all the Bitcoins are out there in the world, that it will be difficult to maintain the system, because there's very little transactions happening. And there's very little incentive for miners. In that scenario, is that how kind of gold is today? where there's not a lot of transactions, there doesn't need to be a lot of transactions. It's kind of like our honeypot of world economy, where people store their long-term wealth, maybe, you know, 5, 10, 20% of what they have in like cash reserve, uh, gold reserves. Is that a bad thing? Like, does that make Bitcoin long-term somehow unviable in your view? I think the difference would be, you know, the miners have these, these super powerful computers, and they're all mining SHA-256 uh, hashes. So for, from a technical perspective, that's basically the the type of um, hashing. Uh, man, I'm, I'm butchering that. But in essence, these machines, they could mine BTC, they could mine BCH or BSV, mm-hmm. all because they're running the same SHA-256. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the gold example you gave is a little bit different. Like a miner, if they wanted to switch from BTC to BSV, it's literally just clicking a button on their miner. And all of a sudden they're mining this chain, but it's it's run on the same SHA-256 hashing algorithm. Whereas with gold, the miners that are mining gold, they can't just say, oh, I'm going to go mine gold SV, which is a totally different type of gold. You know what I mean? Like like the yeah. the infrastructure, there is only one gold. And so I think that's that's a little bit of a difference in that analogy. Yeah. Yeah, m- maybe, it, maybe it moves towards... Um like synthetic trading, you know, when I trade gold, when if I were to buy gold today, I'm not actually buying any gold, I'm buying a certificate that says I own gold, you know, there's no gold right. shipped to my house. So I, I don't know, maybe that's how it moves. Maybe that's the end state of Bitcoin transactions where like, there is very little mining, and there's very little transactions of Bitcoin, but there's synthetic transactions happening. Um, regardless, I think you make a super compelling and very clear argument for BSV. I mean, I, I think it's really unique. I think you explain it in a really clear way and that's simple to understand and hopefully gives many other people at least something to chew on and something to research. So, yeah. I, I, and I want to make one thing clear too. I'm not like BSV only. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm chain agnostic is the way I would put it. I'm just interested in chains where you can actually have utility. And I, yeah. I think, you know, it, it's unfortunate what's going on right now with the market. And I, I do think that a lot of people are, are going to lose and have lost a lot of money uh, because they were you know speculating or investing in something that maybe they didn't fully understand. But I do think that this will just be, you know, one of the early blips on the radar that from this, you know, you will see real utility and, and technologies emerge that, that are going to be successful and that are going to be valuable in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem to me that if you're going to bet on anything, bet on bet on functionality bet on practical valuable uh 
consideration for the technology. It's like anything that's speculative, meaning that the incentives or the value that people get isn't really there, but we all really talk about it and bump up the price. It, it seems like that's the that's the yellow flag for me, where it's like, what are we really what are we really doing here? Um, either way, I love how you turn this into a business. You know, you got Haste Arcade. Uh, bar pay. So congrats on all your progress. Anything you want to throw out there as far as your own personal uh, Twitter or writing that you're doing online? Anything personally that you wanted to? Um, so I'm, I'm actually not on Twitter, but I would say, you know, we do from Haste, I do blogs. Um, I've been on a handful of podcasts now at Haste Arcade is, is our Twitter symbol. Uh, we're on Medium with our blog posts. And we talk about some of this stuff in, in you know, pretty straightforward detail, not, not crazy, complex, or technical, but you know, if you if you really want to learn, like the place to start is the white paper. Just go read. You know, you don't have to understand the technical parts of it, but the abstract is pretty clear. It's it's one page. The whole white paper itself is like nine or ten pages. So it's not that crazy. I think it's just kind of like what we were talking about earlier. People have have I don't know if misled is the right word, but like you know, if you haven't read the white paper yet, and and you're you know investing in Bitcoin, it's like man, that's <laughs> you, you might want to start at at the beginning and just take five minutes and, and read it. So I don't know totally. that's, that would be mine, but yeah, Haste Arcade, uh, on Twitter. And then obviously we have hastearcade.com if you want to come and and play some games. Sweet dude. Well, congrats on all your progress, man. Awesome to meet you and, uh, keep crushing it. Really appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.